Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Officially, it is too close to call, but is looking good by a razor-thin margin for Connor Lamb. Democrat in Pennsylvania's Republican Trump country. Hey, what do you say, folks? Here we go. Wednesday, March 14. Uh, how about it? Great to see you today. Pi Day. Today's Pi Day. Pi Day? Pi Day, 314. Right? March 14th, Pi, 3.14, right? Pi Day. Boy, you lost me, man. <laughs> That's beyond addition and subtraction. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Happy freaking Pi Day, for all I know. Look, I just want an excuse to eat pie, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was hoping you were getting at. Right. You know? Somebody's going to come in with a nice big juicy apple pie or I wish, buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as we were saying, uh, good morning. How do you already say <laughs> it's the Bill Press Show on Pi Day, uh, Wednesday, March 14. Uh, and we're glad to see you today. And thank you for joining us with lots to talk about. Yes, indeed, a big, big uh, upset in Pennsylvania. It looks like this, again, is Trump country. Uh, no Democrat was supposed to win. Democrats haven't even tried to to put up a candidate in that district. It's so deep beat red uh, until this year, and it looks like Democrat Connor Lamb is going to walk away with it, or crawl away with it, by a razor-thin margin, but a huge victory uh, for Democrats, and a huge embarrassment and body blow to Donald Trump. That's just one of the big stories we'll be covering here. All the news of the day, including what's happening at uh, Secretary at the State Department and at the CIA, your comments welcome on all of the above. You know you've got a lot to say about Rex Tillerson, Gina Haspel, the new director of the CIA, uh, Mike Pompeo, the new secretary of state, and about Pennsylvania 18. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We jump right in, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news on this Pi Day. The World Happiness <laughs> oh, <stop> Report. <laughs> the World Happiness Report was put out yesterday to take a look at which countries 
are the happiest. They take a look at happiness levels based on factors such as life expectancy, social support, and corruption. And the number one country in the world was... Disneyland. <laughs> no, Bill, not Disneyland. Well, happy, 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 happy. That's, happy. Not, that's a good guess, but number yeah. one is Finland. Finland is the happiest nation in the world, followed by... Norway. As a matter of fact, listen to the top ten. Tell me if you hear anything that uh, mm-hmm. any trend here. Yeah, right. Top ten are Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, Netherlands, Canada, New Zealand, Sweden, and Australia. Lots of Nordic countries in the Lots top ten. Nordic in fact, all yeah. of the Nordic countries in the top ten. I'm not sure I want to live in a happy country. I, I mean, happy is fine. I'm happy. I mean, I, I can live with that. By the way, you know, yeah, it's like when I lived in L.A., I never wanted to go to Westwood. Because I knew I could never get mugged in Westwood. Sure, I hear that. I, um, it was I hear just like too happy. Too know? happy is yeah. yeah. Right. By the way, how are we doing here in the United States? Well, last we're not year, very happy. last year we were in 14th place. Oh, this year huh. we are in 18th place. So we oh. have fallen just a little bit. Uh, I can't imagine why. Oh no! Right. By the way, yesterday, if I'm surprised you, we're in the top 50, but that's clown in the White House. Seriously, man. Uh, yesterday here in Washington, D.C., if you went by the Capitol, you saw a sobering display. About 7,000 pairs yeah. of shoes on the lawn of the Capitol yesterday. Why? Well, because they said there have been about 7,000 children that have died at the hands of gun violence since... Since Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook in 2012. That, like, that... That's shocking. It should shock all of us. But they put uh, several pairs of shoes, several thousand pairs of shoes uh, on the on the uh, front lawn just to sort of make the point that these are the kids we've lost in six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If only some members of Congress had looked out their windows yeah. and seen and done something about it. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. It is officially too close to call. But Democrat Connor Lamb is claiming a victory. And it looks like he he's going to get that victory when the final votes are counted, which just which should be probably, and let's hope. Before the end of our show today, what do you say, everybody? Great to see you on this Wednesday, March 14. Welcome to the program, the Bill Press Show, coming out to you live nationwide all the way across this great land of ours, every little corner of the United States of America. We are there with you on your way to work, uh, while you're getting up at home, while you're already at the office, out for a walk today, wherever we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. We are uh, marching along with you on Free Speech TV and rolling along with you on the radio on the great WCPT out in the Chicago area, the greater Chicago area, the big progressive voice of Chicago and throughout the state of Indiana on Indiana Talks. Uh, Most of the focus on Pennsylvania 18, but also still lots and lots to talk about. The news that broke in the middle of our program yesterday with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson getting fired by the President of the United States, um, replaced by Mike Pompeo, former Republican uh, hardcore congressman, uh, who's only been in the Trump administration for a year out at the CIA. 
Uh, and then Gina Haspel, the deputy at the CIA, taking over the reins of that agency. Also today, a big day for uh, schools, uh, with high school students particularly, teenagers, walking, planning a big walkout today in memory of those who died in the uh, Parkland, Florida uh, shooting on Valentine's Day. And President Trump making a quick in-and-out visit to California, taking time out to dump on Jerry Brown, saying Jerry Brown is doing a horrible job running the state of California, when in fact California is in the best financial shape of any state in the nation and the best environmental state and the best economic state. And, you know, you can you can go on and on about how well California is doing, which just proves how out of it Donald Trump really is. But the focus again on Pennsylvania 18. Now, let's remember, this is a district that was drawn by the Republican legislature as part of gerrymandering to favor the Republican Party. It is a deep, deep, beat red district, so deep red that Democrats have not even fielded a candidate in this congressional seat for the last two times around. This is a district that Donald Trump won by 20-plus points. This is a district where the Republicans this year spent $10 million to hold on to this seat. This is a district where Mike Pence went up there stumping for Republican candidate Rick Saccone. This is where Donald Trump himself went up last Saturday stumping for Rick Saccone and putting his reputation on the line. This is where Donald Trump sent Donnie Jr. last Sunday or Monday to go up there and stump for Rick Saccone and say, we, 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 we absolutely desperately need to hold on to this seat. This was the test for the Trump policies. This was a referendum on Donald Trump. This is a district where Rick Saccone, the Republican nominee, said, if you don't vote for me, you hate Donald Trump. You hate the United States of America, and you hate God. That's what was on the line here. This is a, this is a district which is made up, for the most part, that little bottom corner, sort of the bottom west southwest corner of Pennsylvania, bordering Ohio and West Virginia, made up of steelworkers and coal miners. So these were Trump voters. This was Trump's base. And Connor Lamb, 33 years old, Democrat, Marine, never say former Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine, uh, great candidate, uh, ran a hell, of a hell of a campaign. The only Democrat that went there to help him was Joe Biden from Pennsylvania uh, originally. And it is, again, officially now too close to call. But here's where it stands from uh, Politico just this morning. Uh, and I looked at this across the board. Connor Lamb is holding in. It's down to uh, the 100% of the precincts are in. So it's down to absentee ballots. And the real question is, where do these outstanding absentee ballots come from? Most of them come from Allegheny County, which is the most, there are four counties, the most Democratic of the four counties, pardon me, is where most of the absentees still have to come from. So the latest I had as we started the show is Connor Lamb with 113,720 votes. 49.8% 
Rick Saccone, 113,079 votes, 48.6%, or a difference of 641 votes. Holy cow, man. Now, again, there are about maybe 5,000 absentee ballots left, but most of those come from Allegheny County. And I would think that we would have a, I keep lo- looking at our mon- TV monitors here, I think we would have a call uh, before the uh, before the end of the program. But already last night, uh, early this morning, we should say, uh, Connor Lamb went out to uh, speak to his supporters. It took a little longer than we thought, but we did it. <laughs> uh, again, let's hope he's right. And he says, here are the people I'm going to fight for when I get to Washington. I'll work on the problems our people face secure their jobs and pensions, protect their family. And I will work with anyone to do that. Uh, Rick Saccone, in the meantime, uh, he said he's not giving up. He still thinks he's going to win. You know, my first race went into the night, and we won that. My second race was the same way. I mean, we're, we're kind of used to this now, right? So uh, that's it. We're not, gonna, we're, not, uh, we're not giving up. Yeah, well, you better get used to losing too. You know, this is uh, this is just like a replay of Alabama. I mean, you know, Roy Roy Moore, Donald Trump went down there and says, "Yeah, I had the big rally in Pensacola, just across the border, uh, and um, and and put everything on the line for Roy Moore." And what happened? He put everything on the line for Rick Saccone, and and we see uh, it really looks like uh, what's going to happen. So huge significance, and boy. Uh, it shows that Republicans are really in trouble in 2018. Again, we said, mentioned this yesterday. In this district, they started out talking about the tax cuts. They thought the tax cuts was going to win. They stopped talking about the tax cuts because people didn't care. They didn't believe them. They didn't believe uh, that, the, that that bill is as good as Republicans are saying it is. So they even they don't even talk about their tax cuts anymore. And they didn't have any message other than, Oh, Connor Lamb's going to be another vote for Nancy Pelosi. When Connor Connor Lamb said, if he came to Washington, he wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. Yeah, you know it's it's so interesting because I saw a lot of Democrats yesterday on online just sort of complaining about the kind of Democrat that Connor Lamb is, and I get that he's not my kind of Democrat. No, he's a Democrat to win that district. But he's the Democrat to win that district. You and know if what? You want to win some of those districts. Mm-hmm. You just are going to have to deal with the fact that they're not going to be with you on 100% of the issues. No, but you know— You need to have those kind of Democrats to win in damn, certain areas. Damn straight. And by the way, you know, Nancy Pelosi's the first one who would say that. Uh, he, But um, uh, he's—what I, what I really think is exciting about this district for me, because I'm a big union guy, and the people that—let's let's assume he wins, right? He owes his victory— he owes his showing, even short of a victory, to the unions, the steelworkers and the coal miners who came back to the Democratic Party here. Because in, in Connor Lamb, they had a Democrat who spoke their language. They had a Democrat who was addressing their issues and talking about economic populism and, and issues that were important, health care and benefits and pensions and jobs to working-class Democrats. That's who Connor Lamb is. And, you know, so Donald Trump came out with these tariffs on the steel industry, which, by the way, the steel workers like, but they were supporting Connor Lamb, not Rick Saccone, because they know when they got a choice between a guy who's really on their side or a guy who just talks like he's on their side, a phony like Donald Trump, 
they'll take the real guy, and they took Connor Lamb. So th- th- there's a lot, a lot of lessons to be learned here. But in with with Connor Lamb and with the union support, the Democrats came home in this district, and that can happen all across the country with the right candidate and with the right message. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of when uh, there was the the election for Tom Price's old seat, right? Uh, I'm trying to think of the Democrat, John Ossoff. Yeah, right. Oh, and, yeah, down. And, and which, which we Georgia. lost, which we lost in Georgia. And and we were saying, you know, Democrats are going to have to win in areas like that, right? There was not much of a harder district to win than the one in Pennsylvania that was won last night by a Democrat. You just they're go and I guess like the the John Ossoff race was a little earlier on in the in in the the new form of the Democratic Party right under Tom Perez and I think they got their act together. They and, did, and and you know he did a good showing, but as we said, he wasn't a great candidate. No, and he didn't even no. live in the district. No, 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 no. Right. There were so, some problems there, yeah, right? But like right. now, I think we've learned. We got it together. How to get it together? How to win in some of these areas that are specifically gerrymandered or, or traditionally have been red districts, and they're going in and they're winning. Yeah. So we'll keep you up to date on this uh, throughout the morning, uh, uh, throughout the show here, uh, with what's happening. I think we'll have a call uh, very soon. Uh, and again, the irony of this is that this district um, where the election was held yesterday will not exist in another month because Pennsylvania has been forced to redraw the lines. So whoever wins will be running again in November. Uh, but if it is Connor Lamb, and I believe it will be, uh, he will be running in a much more friendly district uh, because of new district drawn Whoever draws a district, it'll have to be a fairer district and a more level playing field than the Republican-drawn district that they ran in uh, that they ran in yesterday. So again, the margin right now sticks at 641 vote difference between. That's close, Connor man. Land. By the way, it started out uh, because uh, out with some friends last night. We, I just was on my phone the whole time. It started out 20 points spread. Uh, and it stayed at 20 points, and then it got closer and closer. Now it's down to <laughs> six-tenths of 1%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. That's pretty, that's pretty close. <laughs> you know, but again, as we learned in Virginia, every vote counts. Every single vote counts. And again, uh, I got a I gotta, I gotta, a big shout-out to the steelworkers, uh, Leo Gerard and the Steelworkers Union, and I forget the name of the president of the mine workers, but they all came home here for the Democratic candidate, uh, despite Donald Trump and his and his tariffs, they just didn't believe that Donald Trump's a friend of uh, working class Americans, which he is not. Meanwhile, um, I talked to a couple of Republican friends yesterday who were pretty upset at Donald Trump for choosing yesterday the day of a special election in Pennsylvania where all of their efforts should have been focused maybe on that special election, Donald Trump choosing yesterday morning to fire his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. Those of you with us yesterday know that news broke in the middle of our program, and um, uh, Eugene Scott was here from the Washington Post, uh, and Andrew Desiderio from Daily Beast, and myself, and all of us were speechless. I mean, it's just boom. Uh, we knew that Tillerson was on thin ice, but didn't know that it was going to come the way it came. And it came 
in the worst Trumpian style possible. By the, by the way, I just want to mention, if you didn't get a chance to see yesterday's show, we put that clip up on our YouTube oh, really? channel, yeah. youtube.com oh. slash The Bill Pressure, where, where we all found out at the we same all, time. And we're all just stunned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so at any rate, uh, Rex Tillerson, poor guy, he's in Africa doing his job as Secretary of State. Coming home, he on Twitter, he learns that he's been fired. That he's no longer Secretary of State. He learns on Twitter. The president did not call him. The president did not talk. say, Rex, you know, thanks for hanging in for a year. Thought it might work out. Hasn't really worked out. You and I have too many different. Whatever. Whatever. Thanks for your service. No. On Twitter, he fired his Secretary of State. And and this named, changed. Because when we first they reported it, the, the, the story The White House was, put out a phony story. The White House said they yeah. had called him and told him on, on Friday, Friday uh, which no, turns out is not, not true. Not true, right. And, in fact, when uh, his, Rex Tillerson's deputy or uh, top assistant at the State Department was asked about that, he said, no, no, they didn't call Rex Tillerson on Friday. He didn't learn until this morning uh, that was the truth, and then he was fired for telling the truth about how Rex Tillerson uh, got the news. And, by the way, uh, so really handled with uh, the worst disgusting way possible and just not even common courtesy. At the same time, you got to say Rex Tillerson was a disaster as Secretary of State. He should never have been named in the first place. He had zero experience. Big corporate America. Donald Trump was impressed, I guess, because he had so much money and had so much power and was so friendly to Russia. Remember, this is a guy who got an award from Russia for making a great big oil deal with Russia. Um, and he um, basically gutted the secretary, the State Department while he was there. There were some 640 positions that he never filled uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the State Department. We don't have an ambassador to South Korea. There are many assistant sec- We don't have a, an assistant secretary to the Near East. Um, so clearly, Rex Tillerson would have had some difficulty getting things done because of his disagreements with Donald Trump. But he didn't even try to make the State Department, to keep the State Department the strong uh, foundation and and institution uh, that it always has been. Uh, He didn't care. He didn't meet with reporters. He didn't give briefings. He didn't let them travel with him. Uh, And uh, disaster all the way around. It'll take years and years to recover from his tenure at the State Department. So no tears shed for the loss of Rex Tillerson, but what we get instead is George Pompeo, who is a Donald Trump cheerleader. In Congress, he was one of the first early supporters of Donald Trump. He is 100% with Donald Trump. The one thing you can say about Tillerson is he disagreed with Trump on the Iran nuclear deal. He was willing to say we should stick to that deal. He disagreed with Donald Trump on talks with North Korea. Remember, at one time, Donald Trump actually said, Rex, you're out of line. Don't suggest we should be moving in a diplomatic fashion with North Korea. And now it's Trump. Now look. Yeah, who's calling for the summit. So go figure. Uh, And it was Rex Tillerson on coming home from Africa who said, yeah, it was clearly Russia and the Russian government that poisoned this Russian oligarch in in London uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, so he identified Russia as the as the guilty party there when the White House wouldn't even comment on what happened. So he had his differences with Donald Trump, but George Pompeo, 
is a Mike Trump. Pompeo, Mike, Mike Pompeo. Pompeo, sorry, is a. I'm thinking of the other guy, George Papadopoulos. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> George Bush is a CIA director. George Tenet. Tenet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike Pompeo. He is a Trump echo chamber. He is a cheerleader. He he thinks the Iran nuclear deal ought to be trashed. He do, he thinks we ought to be at war with North Korea. He'll go along with anything Donald Trump says, which is pretty scary. By the way, something to, to, to keep and in mind has here: zero foreign policy experience. Yeah, that that that's a real total problem. zero. Something to keep in mind here: Mike Pompeo was confirmed uh, for CIA director. He now has to be confirmed for Secretary of State. Uh, Fourteen. Democrats voted to confirm Mike Pompeo for when mm. he took over the CIA. Now, I would like to see how many Democrats changed their mind for the Secretary of State role. And by the way, Gina Haspel, uh, she has to be confirmed as well. And, yeah. Uh, and right. We're going to get there, I know. But right. like, I'd, I'd be curious to see how Democrats have changed their tune in the years since some of these confirmations. Well, Gina Haspel, who is the new director of the CIA... Uh, she's been at the CIA for a long time. She's a career CIA person. Uh, so um, that's kind of one thing she's got going for her. The CIA likes to have inside people kind of move up because they feel comfortable with them. But she has a horrible reputation. So this is a woman who uh, in the um, early days of the George Bush administration, uh, when we were doing renditions uh, and picking up people that we suspect are suspected of being al-Qaeda sympathizers and taking them to certain black sites, remember, that we had um, been able to set up in friendly countries. We don't torture here. Oh, no. We Americans would never torture anybody, not on our soil. Instead, we set up these black sites, these black hole prisons, where we would take them to countries that would let us get away with torturing them there and maybe even do it for us. I forget how many of these there were. I think there was one in Egypt. There was one in Thailand that she was in charge of. She was sent from here to be in charge of this prison in Thailand, which was codenamed Cat's Eye. And it's in Thailand, in this prison in Cat's Eye, where she oversaw... Um, remember Dick Cheney used to call them enhanced interrogation techniques? Water... Oh, you mean, oh, you mean torture? I mean torture, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean waterboarding. She oversaw that uh, practice, uh, which was against U.S. law and clearly against the Geneva Codes and international law. She oversaw it. And then when word came out that that's what we were doing, she gave the order to destroy the tapes. Uh, I think that it was a deputy director of the ACLU today said this woman is a war criminal. She's not been charged with those crimes. There was some investigation. But at that time, um, partly because of Barack Obama no, I- not following through and not being remember John Conyers was trying to get Barack Obama to investigate these crimes at the CIA. And the president said then new president. No, I want to look forward. I don't want to look back. So none of these people were ever charged or brought to trial. But had they been, she's guilty of war crimes. That's a, that's a very good point. That's where my head went yesterday yeah, as I was right? reading more about her. I mean, she should be in the Hague, right? Like she should have Absolutely. been. She should have been brought up uh, right. along with a lot right. of people. And as you mentioned, Barack Obama just let him go. And now look, she's going to be the head. She could be the head of the CIA. Like that's pretty terrifying. That's and, pretty terrifying. Yeah. 
and it, it brings it back around to uh, appointed by a president who has said he'd bring torture back, right? Yeah. I mean, he... We're going back there, man. That's where we're heading. That's that's terrifying. It is. Yeah. I would hope, I would hope that there could be enough opposition, I, mean, I would, wouldn't count on it, in this Congress uh, to block her uh, nomination. So all of that coming down yesterday, you see there's no no big news to talk about at all. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's hard to, it's it's hard bit, to keep yeah. up with. And meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump is off for his first visit since uh, being elected president to, um, or being, I don't know, made president, uh, to California, where he went down to look at the prototypes for his wall. This is silly. They've got these. It really was a charade. uh, Really a charade. So they got, I don't know, five or six prototypes of what a wall might look like, right? Uh, And Donald Trump went down there. He was met with with some uh, protesters. Uh, little, yep. I would, I would hope they'd be met. There were protesters, by the way, on the Mexican side of the wall too, or the or the fence, or whatever where he was. But Donald Trump insists again that this wall is going to save lives and save money. It'll save thousands and thousands of lives, save taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. By reducing crime, drug flow, welfare fraud, and burdens on schools and hospitals. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, come on. He keeps drawing all these, uh, gilding the lily here, you know. And then, uh, but of course, of course, this wall, there's one thing about this wall. And by the way, the prototypes that I saw don't meet this test. There's one thing about this wall. You've got to, it's got to be like glass. You have to be able to see through it. The problem is you have to have see-through. You have to know what's on the other side of the wall. What? <laughs> now, doesn't that kind of contradict what a wall is all about? I, I've seen a lot of walls in my day. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of see-through walls. No. you know, I've, I've seen fences. Right. That I can see through. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about these walls you see, like, along the freeway, the sound barriers, you know what I mean? Sure. You can't. No, you can't see through. See through them? No. Because so, they're walls. You're not supposed to see through walls. But I'm trying to think of what is his thinking about why you have to see through so you can see who's in, on the other side? I mean. I guess. He even said at one point, uh, uh, that, well, like, if they're throwing things over the wall, like if the drugs are being thrown over the wall, you don't want to get hit on the head. <laughs> Literally what he said. If they're throwing drugs over the wall, you want to make sure you don't get hit on the head. Hmm. Well, meanwhile, um, he is uh, also talking about. Uh, it's hard to keep up with this idiot's thinking. It's hard. He's talking about. Okay, we're going to have um, no. So he went to a marine base. I Which he it. went on Twitter and spelled Marine Corps C O R E. I know that we shouldn't make fun <laughs> of really? his spelling errors yeah, on Twitter no. all the time, but like he misspelled Marine Corps. I I hate it when they use the military for props. I hate it more when the military allow themselves to be used as props, which the Marines did. Uh, so he now, he's also, he's not only reinventing the wall, he is reinventing the armed forces because now we're going to have a new system of hypersonic systems, whatever the hell they are. We've increased investment in hypersonic weapon systems by 50 percent. 
and we're accelerating development of hypersonic system that can fly five times the speed of sound. That's pretty quick. That's pretty quick. That's pretty quick. <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> what is he talking about? I don't know. I don't know. Seriously, I, I have no idea what he's talking about. And and now, here, shades of Newt Gingrich, right? We're in, the Air Force. Uh, uh-uh, uh, that's not enough. We need. We need. There we go. We may even have a space force. Develop another one. Space force. We have the Air Force. We'll have the Space Force. We have the Army, the Navy. The Space Force. Yes. Beam space me. Space force. Beam me up, Scotty. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> space force. Where is he going? Oh my God. Oh man, there's so much in the news today. One final little bit of news as we take a break. Um, remember, we were told uh, flat, flat out that when uh, they discovered, Ben Carson discovered that somebody had ordered this 31,000 dining set for his office. He was appalled because he and his wife, Candy, knew nothing about it. Uh, Armstrong Williams, his spokesperson, said uh-uh, the secretary was totally, did, had no idea anybody was planning this. Well, uh, it turns out there are now emails that have uh, leaked that show that actually the secretary and his wife, Candy, did, in fact, pick out the $31,000 dining set for his office. So, breaking news, another big lie yeah. out of the Trump administration. There you go. Got to take a quick break. Jer- Jeremy Herb from uh, CNN uh, joins us next uh, with the latest on this House Intelligence Committee stopping their investigation. What happens now with Robert Mueller and the Senate Intelligence Committee? Lots more coming up, and we're keeping our eye on Pennsylvania 18 here on Wednesday, March 14, the Bill Press Show. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Yes, indeed. Uh, Still no official word from Pennsylvania 18, but Connor Lamb, Democrat, is himself declaring victory, even though nobody else has officially called it. And it looks like it's going to go that way. Hello, everybody. Welcome back uh, to the Bill Press Show here on this Wednesday, March 14. I spent about an hour yesterday just sitting there signing books, signing copies of my new book, From the Left, Life in the Crossfire. Uh, Comes out just a week from yesterday, and many, many, many of you have already ordered your uh, advanced signed copy if you haven't already done so. Uh, Now's a reminder to get in before... Launched, go to our website, BillPressShow.com, and you can order a copy at a special 40% discount just for our listeners and our viewers only. Um, this is a, just uh, the story about a lot of fun that I've had so far, from working for Jerry Brown uh, to uh, hanging out at the White House with Bill Clinton and with Barack Obama. All my days at Crossfire with Pat Buchanan and Bob Novak and Mary Madeline and others. Um, blurb on the front from Bernie Sanders and blurbs on the back from Nancy Pelosi, Jerry Brown, Rosa DeLauro, Maxine Waters, Jenk Uger from T, uh, Young Text Network, and our good friend Anderson Cooper from CNN. So if you haven't already, plus a few friends on the right, too, Joe Scarborough, Tucker Carlson, and believe it or not, Ann Coulter. So got to want to read this. Get your copy, BillPressShow.com, uh, and uh, do it today. Speaking of CNN, CNN hasn't called Pennsylvania 18 yet, but Jeremy Herb from CNN up late last night tracking this joins us in studio to talk about the Russian investigation and other important matters. Hi, Jeremy. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Paul 
Manafort heard yesterday from a judge that uh, he could face up to 305 years on the charges that are currently filed against him. How's the future looking for Paul Manafort? It's quite a long time. You know, it's been interesting to see since the the indictments last Uh, year uh, how it sort of marched forward and pushed all signs toward Manafort. You know, you had both, it was Gates and Manafort together, and now Gates has flipped and pled guilty, and he will not be getting 305 years, although we don't know quite what his sentence is going to look like. But, I mean, obviously the the idea here is to try, I think they would like to get a guilty plea here from from Paul Manafort. I think, you know, Mueller's team is is, is trying to put pressure on him. What choice does he have other than fight it? But he's got to see that the odds are pretty, pardon me, pretty strongly against him. Yeah, I mean, and I think that he's shown no indication that he's not going to fight it. I think we are going to yeah, see see a trial like here, it. which which could be fascinating. Um, but it's the it's it'll be difficult. I mean, it seems like the, there's a pretty a pretty hefty case. Obviously, three, you don't get to 305 years worth of charges by accident. <laughs> um, so it's going to. I think it will be difficult for him, but um, it's 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 certainly not going anywhere either. I think I I can't remember now when they they set the trial for, but they're just kind of slowly moving in that whole process. Has Mueller interviewed Manafort? Um, that's I am. You know, I'm blanking on whether he talked to they talked to him or not. Um, they had, I remember they had the raid. Um, where, where the FBI raided his house. I don't believe he went in for an interview, but don't quote me on that because I okay. can't quite remember. Well, the reason I ask is because we know uh, who did not. The House Intelligence Committee did not interview uh, Paul Manafort, nor Rick Gates, nor George Papadopoulos, uh, nor Michael Flynn. And yet they have folded their tent and closed their doors or whatever and filed a final report. So what was that all about? Were they Were they ever serious about pursuing this investigation to its uh, conclusion? Well, the Democrats on the committee say no. The Adam Schiff, the, the top Democrat, uh, told us yesterday that he basically thinks that Republicans are out from the start, especially Chairman Devin Nunes, were trying to protect the president and run through the motions of doing this investigation without actually following the leads. They put out a 20-page report showing all the areas where they hadn't investigated, all the witnesses that they hadn't talked to, people they should subpoena, documents they should be asking for, um, and in some ways, it was kind of a blueprint of what I think could happen if Democrats take back the House. Um, Adam so Sch- Democrats put out this report yesterday? This It was a status update. It status wasn't a report. Up, okay. They are also – so Republicans have now a 150-page draft report that they're going to show – they've showed to the Democrats yesterday. They're going to work on it behind closed doors with staff. Democrats are now preparing their own report that's going to be – remember the memo, the memo and the counter memo? Mm-hmm. Now we're going to have a report and a counter report. Um, those are going to take a little while to get public, though, because they're going to go through the proper declassification process in the executive branch. Um, but I think, you know, at this point, you know, the witnesses you mentioned were the folks who have been indicted by Mueller. They're kind of off limits to Congress. Um, Schiff is talking, in addition to those people, others um, that he wants to talk to on his list was Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, uh Natalia Veselnitskaya, the Russian lawyer who hasn't come in to talk to anyone in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, Schiff was open to the idea yesterday. Basically what he said was, if we take back the House, we're going to look at what the Senate's done. We're going to look at what Mueller's done. And if we feel there are areas that still need to be investigated, we might take that back up. So he's not throw, he's not denying the idea that he is thinking about what could happen if he suddenly does become chairman next year. Right. Uh, what impact does the... Uh, end of the House Intelligence Committee investigation have on the Senate side? 
Not much. The two sides have not been talking. Um, and I think Richard Burr, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, is happy to have it that way. He's been very quiet over the past few months. You haven't heard much about the Senate. There's been all these fireworks in the House over the memo, um, you know, the constant kind of partisan fighting. We've seen the wall that they were briefly considering building in the staff room. <laughs> Senate is quietly doing its thing. They are um, still interviewing witnesses. Um, they're going to put out a rep- an interim report just on election security because Burr wants to do that for the primaries on how states can improve their election infrastructure and all of that. But they're still leaving that collusion question open. Um, it doesn't mean that they aren't going to go off the rails too come July or whenever. Um, but at this point, him and Warner, the top Democrat on the committee, are on the same page. Um, they're doing their thing. They did talk to Paul Manafort. Uh, they got to him before he was indicted, the only only congressional committee to do so. Mm-hmm. And are they looking at, as is Robert Mueller, so far as we know, are they looking at uh, interference, possible collusion, and beyond, or obstruction of justice, or not? They're not looking at obstruction of justice. And Burr has been quick to say many times at this point that he's not looking at criminality, that Congress's job is not to find crimes. That is Uh the job of Robert Mueller. Uh, But they're looking at what Russia did. They're looking at possible collusion. Um, They've interviewed almost everyone who was in the Trump Tower meeting, the June 2016 meeting um, with the vessel in the sky notwithstanding. Um, So I think they are looking at the collusion question. Now, the the finances, you know, possible real estate deals and money laundering, the stuff that some of the stuff that Mueller has gone after. That's not what the Senate is doing and not really what any of the congressional committees are doing to this point. You know, kind of related. There was a story yesterday that. Uh, there's always been this question about when did the Trump people know or what did they know about Russia, Russia's interference in the election process and Russia's hacking of the DNC. Um, and what particularly did Roger Stone know, who was close to Donald Trump? Uh, and there are stories now that there were some real, there were actual contacts or attempts to contact, but by Roger Stone to contact Julian Assange and and was very part of that mix. Yeah, there was a story from the Washington Post yesterday saying yeah. that, that there was an attempt to con- between Stone and Assange to make contact. Stone denied that that was the case. Um, but, you know, who knows? It's, but it's, he did say ahead of time, like, John Podesta had better watch out or something. He, he like. said John Podesta is going to have his time in the barrel. Um, yeah. and that was before his that, emails were leaked. And that that is one of the reasons he's been, I think, one of the, the figures that Democrats have focused on um, because – he did predict this, and he insists, oh, it wasn't about the WikiLeaks emails. I had no advanced knowledge. Um, but there's kind of been this drip, drip, drip surrounding him. Sam Numberg obviously said that he thinks Roger could be in trouble. Um, and so it's something Mueller is looking at if we are to believe Sam Numberg and what he said about, about Mueller's probe. And, and at the time, it's hard to keep track of when Stone was inside the circle or outside the circle, but he's never— Right. Far from the circle. He's right? not. He has not been in the circle since really the campaign got going. So all uh, of this happened yeah. when he was not in the circle. But, you know, with the president, that doesn't necessarily matter because if you're talking, you know, he's talking to the president, or at least in 2016, he was talking to the president regularly. Okay. So, uh, same question about the House Intelligence Committee. What impact on the Mueller investigation? Again, I think little with the one caveat that. If, and I again say if, the president wants to try and shut down the Mueller investigation, one point of evidence he could would use would be the report that's going to come out from the committee. 
Um, no indication that that's going to happen. But he did tweet he in all He could say, caps. we don't need Mueller anymore. It's already been reviewed. It's been decided. They spent a year and a half. They talked to all these people. Boom. End of story. Right? And, that's, and, that's, and fire Robert Mueller. And that's the Democrats' fear, and that's what they're going to try and push back against. Again, there's no, no indication that that, that, that is in, on the table. Um, at this point, but obviously the president feels this is a witch hunt and a hoax, and he's going to he's going to be very happy with the House Intelligence. Does Republican it look like Republican. Mueller is winding down? It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Um, you know, he's, you know, we've seen from Numberg and others that it looks like you know they're ramping up and going in a lot of different directions, um, and it's a risk the House Republicans are taking by ending their probe because if Mueller finds something six weeks, six months from now, it could make their report look very outdated. Uh, Mike Conaway, the top Republican who's leading that probe, he said, he, you know, we will reevaluate if, if something else comes out, whether we need to look at it. Um, but I think, you know, the Republicans on that committee are ready, are ready to move on and kind of let the chips fall where they may. Right. So what is your best uh, reporting on when did Rex Tillerson find out that he was no longer secretary of state? <laughs> uh, that was a big question yesterday. I mean, on the one hand, we've known from Basically yeah. months now that this that this was in the works. Uh, my colleagues reported that that there was a phone call between the chief of staff and then Rex Tillerson on on Friday of last week, where there was some sort of discussion that a tweet may be coming. Um, and Apparently, then, he said, "Keep your eyes open. There could be a tweet mentioning right. you coming." Well. That's not exactly dropping the hammer. I mean, keep, he tweets about Jeff Sessions all the time, and so far Jeff Sessions is still the attorney <laughs> yeah, general. Yeah, right. And for John Kelly to tell him that is not saying, Rex, you're going to be fired, and right? I, I think there may be still to, more to learn about <laughs> what exactly happened in that conversation. Yeah, and when yeah. he, you know, he's going to be there now, Tillerson, until the end of the month, and I think maybe perhaps after he leaves, he'll be a little more open in discussing his final days. I mean— it, it's but, quite a you know he was in Africa he got food poisoning had to come back it's 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 been a tough uh, tough week for him so it, it's there's also the story that he didn't learn until the tweet right yesterday that he was fired right and I think it seems like that's and the case Trump officially. admits that he didn't talk to him yeah 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 I think that it's clear that yeah, the Trump did not talk to him before he was he was fired over Twitter um, it's you know it it is what it is it, it's it's certainly keeping. Keeping in the the way that this administration has gone, keep in mind Comey learned he was fired uh, on TV. Mm -hmm. um, you know there was a letter that Keith Schiller, uh, Trump's body, longtime body guy, delivered to the FBI. Comey was in California, um, and so it's not entirely shocking that the Tillerson learned his father's was firing. There's something way. to be said about a guy like Trump who who likes <laughs> to act like he's in charge and firing people is no big deal. I mean he made that sort of name for himself on The Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, not right. actually knowing how to fire people. Like, yeah, I mean, I didn't it's, think... It's, he... it's remarkable that he's not going and doing this himself, right? For a guy that, like, I alone can fix it, and the buck stops here type of mentality. You would not think that he would hesitate from firing somebody face-to-face. Right. -face. I mean, right. that's what The Apprentice was all about, right? And yet he has shown his an inability or unwillingness to do it here. He, he did talk yesterday to reporters at Little Scrum on heading out to, to Marine One on his way to California, uh, saying um, that, you know, yeah, I like Rex Tillerson, but. Right. I actually got along well with Rex, but really it was a different mindset. It was a different thinking. Uh, a different kind of thinking and indicating that there are still more changes to come, the president I'm, added. I'm really at a point where we're getting very close to having 
the cabinet and other things that I want. <laughs> that should strike the strike fear into the heart of every cabinet member. Oh yeah, right. Well, especially a couple of them who have uh, been on the hot seat lately. Right. So if you had to fill out that list, it would be Jeff Sessions, Jeff Sessions, uh, Shulkin, VA secretary. I think Ben Carson uh, may now be in some hot water. Um, and McMaster. Betsy DeVos. McMaster, Betsy DeVos is I, this week. There are indications that the White House is not happy with her performance on 60 Minutes. Yeah. No, I don't think all of them are going to be gone. I sure. think the White House and Trump are unhappy with people, and then that can shift. Um, I think for the case for Sessions, that's not the case. Um, he is in obviously a different spot because of Mueller and the recusal. And so we don't know whether he will you know, ultimately be fired. Uh, but certainly Trump, when Trump talks about having the cabinet he wants, I don't know that he envisions Jeff Sessions in that cabinet. OK. Now, we know that Tillerson and Trump did disagree on certain aspects of foreign policy. The Iran nuclear deal may be the, the number one case. What about George? I'm sorry, Mike Pompeo and Rex and uh, Donald Trump. Pompeo is much more in line with Trump's thinking. He was one of the the vo- most vocal critics of the Iran deal when it passed in Congress initially. Um, it doesn't seem like he necessarily wants or will want to uh, keep that deal. Um, and I think he will be much more on the side of those pushing Trump to to kill it. Um, it's you know the timing is interesting because there are negotiations going on right now in in Europe about how to maybe update it in order to you know kind of get to a place where they can put it aside um, and and kind of keep keep the suspension of sanctions but maybe make some changes to make it you know at least somewhat acceptable to Trump. Uh, the other question, North Korea, um, you know obviously Pompeo's head of the CIA, his job was to kind of figure out how close they were to you know having nuclear weapons that could strike the U.S. and, and what, they're, you know, what they were doing. And now he's going to be in a different role on the diplomatic side of things, um, which is a very different role given that, you know, the summit that could be coming up. Um, and so we haven't really heard from Pompeo about, about his, his thoughts about, how, you know, whether diplomacy can work. But the CIA was probably among the most skeptical of cabinet What agencies. kind of foreign policy experience does he have? He was a member of the House Intelligence Committee. And so his... his uh, his experience is in the intel, intel world, and I think yeah. you know he was respected at the CIA. There were some who thought he was too political for that job, um, but you know you haven't heard a whole lot about him. He hasn't been you know we talk about all these other cabinet secretaries who have these issues, and we haven't really heard that from him. Uh, he gives the, the presidential daily brief to Trump uh, a few times a week, um, so they have a rapport there. And so what we don't know, I think, is does that mean the president will trust Pompeo when he disagrees with him? We've seen with with Mattis that he's been able to kind of shape the president's views. And I think, you know, the president trusts Pompeo. And so there's a chance that he'll be able to do that. On the flip side, I think the two of them are already kind of more aligned in terms of what they their views on the world. All right. So who is Gina Haspel? Gina Haspel will, will be has been nominated to uh, replace Pompeo. And she currently is the deputy director of the CIA. Um, she, it's worth noting, she was not confirmed. That is not a Senate confirmable position. Mm. So when she was nominated last year for that role, um, or when she was tapped for that role, there was some concern raised among Democrats. She met with some Democrats, but she didn't have to go through the confirmation process. That is going to be a difficult process because of her role in uh, the Bush era interrogation programs. You know, she ran the black site in Thailand. Uh, she was chief of staff to. Uh, um, the head of I'm blanking on the name of the agency, but uh, the uh, she was she was chief of staff when um, the CIA destroyed tapes of mm-hmm. the interrogations, mm-hmm. and and it was she was mm-hmm. directed by her boss to to draft the cable authorizing that to happen. 
all of this is going to come out. Um, you know, there are already Democrats who you know are saying they're opposed to this and, and that she's going to have to answer for this. And some Republicans, too, have said that, you know, they need to hear what, you know, her answer for her role. I mean, there was talk about some of the people in the CIA at the time. There was talk about some of those people, including her, being charged with war crimes for interrogation techniques and for co- destruction of evidence of that. Uh, what are you hearing from Democrats on the Hill uh, on, in the Senate? I think they're going to try and, and we're going to they haven't really had a chance to put that on trial in a public setting. You know, they're, during the Obama administration, you know, folks like Gina Haspel were not obviously nominated to be the CIA director. Um, her confirmation process is going to be the ability to have that fight now. And I think peop, some people like Ron Wyden are going to really try and dig in and, and do that. He was saying yesterday he wants all of her records to be declassified as part of this, because most of what we know about mm-hmm. her is from reports. Um, it's not public because she's been a 30-year employee of the CIA. Uh, the senator, I think, to watch is going to be Diane Feinstein. She wrote the, you know, she was head of the Intelligence Committee when they had the torture report in 2014. Right, right. Um, Which know, is a rough, tough report. It's that a she very put tough out, report. Really and, and she, documenting absolutely what was happening at the CIA. And and in 2013, the Times has reported that she kind of put the brakes on on a promotion for Haspel. Uh, but when I spoke to her yesterday, she she praised Haspel. She said, you know, look, we've had long conversations about this. I've spoken to her at length about it. I think she's done a good job. Um, but she said, basically, we'll see. She's going to wait and see what happens in the confirmation hearings uh, before she decides how she's going to vote. Um, so that will be that that, of course, does require Senate confirmation. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's right. all, but 51 or 50 votes are, you know, with a tiebreaker for Mike Pence. They don't need 60. So. Um, you know, the 51-49 majority doesn't give them much room, but they don't need Democrats in order to get her nomination through. Mm-hmm. What is your read now? Um, this was, a, you know, the way things work today, you have a big story for 24 hours and then you just forget about it, move on. But um, there's still the issue of whether or not we're going to see um, a sit-down summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, where, what's going on? It does seem like it was so long ago, right? I know. I know. It was last Friday, I think, right? That, that sounds right. That's um, Jesus. Yeah. There's, you know, the, I think there are still preparations ongoing for that. Um, the, the president seemed sort to of be waffling out, a little bit. There, were, there was some waffling. There was some, well, we need some, some things to happen first, um, you know, in terms yeah. of, of denuclearization, in terms of missile testing. Um, Pompeo coming in, I think we'll see if that shifts the conversation and that shifts the views. Keep in mind, Donald Trump was opposed to diplomacy. You know, he was criticizing Rex Tillerson for touting it yeah, uh, several yeah, months ago. Right, and then right. the summit kind of came along and he jumped at it while Tillerson was in Africa, which I think was writing on the wall more than anything else even. But, I mean, there's a lot to be done. If, if uh, Originally, they were talking about doing this in May or even before May, right? I mean, six weeks. That's it's a not lot. not a lot of time. Um, I would not be surprised if that date slips. Um, I think it's... You know, there there are so many logistical and and policy and kind of foreign policy hurdles to to overcome to make this happen. To figure out where you're going to have the summit, you know, what are the what are the rules for it? You know, what what you know, it, just lots and lots and lots of questions about making it happen. Um, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I think I think there's clearly a, an interest. The president wants to make it happen. Um, What's the closest Trump property to North Korea? It's <laughs> a good question. That's where it will be held. Yeah, there's one in Hawaii, I think, isn't there? I don't know. I, yeah, there I is one in Hawaii. Know. He stopped there? there when he when he did his Asia trip. Of course he did. Right. 
and there's Vegas. Somehow I don't think it's going to be in the U.S. I, I put my money on China. China? That's that's just that would be pure, my, yeah. my informed, semi-informed speculation. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's worth mine. <laughs> More yeah, than sure. mine. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Hey, Jeremy, good job keeping on top of all of this for CNN. I'll say hello to our good friends over there at CNN and CNN.com, of course. When we come back, Chris Liu joins us to take another look at uh, what's happening in Pennsylvania. 18 and beyond. We'll be this right back. is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Do we have a winner in Pennsylvania, 18? Not officially, but is looking, looking, looking more like Connor Lamb by a razor-thin margin. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we are. It is Wednesday, March 14. Uh, This is The Bill Press Show. And, of course, you are part of it. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. As we tackle the big news of the day, and there is a lot of it, yes, indeed, that special election up in Pennsylvania, right down to the wire. Nobody has officially called it yet, but Connor Lamb, uh, who now leads by our count by 641 total votes, um, will looks like the winner, and he is making the rounds of the morning shows this morning declaring himself the winner before anybody officially crowns him with that title. At the same time, Rex Tillerson, smarting after being learned yesterday, it broke during this hour of our show yesterday morning, uh, that Donald Trump had fired Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State, named Mike Pompeo director of CIA to take his place, a move into Secretary of State, and Gina Haspel, the deputy director of CIA, to take over that agency. And Donald Trump makes his first visit to California and takes advantage of the opportunity to trash California and to trash Jerry Brown and to trash all the progress that California has made. With all of that, we want to hear from you, your comments on the news of the day. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show, and we'll check in with you. Get right to the news with Chris Liu joining us from University of Virginia's Miller Center. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so you know that Amazon can get you everything delivered just about as quickly as you want it to be delivered. Well, they're about to have some competition. Walmart has announced they are going to be delivering groceries 
to you. Now, here's the thing. They've been doing this in six metro areas, sort of testing it out. They announced that they are expanding to 100 different cities, and they said that by the end of the year, they hope to be reaching 40% of U.S. households. Here's how it works. What do you mean? Delivering groceries? Delivering groceries. Yeah. It's a flat fee of $9.95 for delivery. And then you have to require, it requires you order a minimum of $30 worth of groceries, and then they'll deliver your groceries right to your house. And they say that this could happen in about three to four hours. That's that's the amount of time. So if you're at work and you want to cook dinner, but you don't have anything, log on, get your groceries, have them delivered by the time you get home, voila. Well, Amazon is, is just starting in the grocery delivery business. They are right? just starting in the grocery delivery business. So Walmart is trying to get out ahead of of Amazon. It's it's essentially it's a direct attack on what Amazon is doing. So we'll see how well it works. Yeah, they'll never catch up with Amazon. It would be tough. It no. would be tough. You know, I just think we all just should surrender right now to Amazon. <laughs> Pretty much. Because they're going to own us all in a couple of years. It's just a matter of time. And then not pay taxes. Yep. That's the other thing. They just won't pay taxes. Uh, by the way, this is I, I find this story fascinating because yesterday National Geographic came out and acknowledged that they've been doing the magazine for quite some time, and they had to admit some of our reporting over the years has been flat-out racist. They got someone, the editor-in-chief, Susan Goldberg, uh, put some, uh, a statement out saying that they hired someone to take a look at their uh, hmm history of the publication, a historian, and they put out a couple of examples that they say they are very embarrassed by. For example, in 1916, they did a story about Australia that featured two Aboriginal people, and the caption says, these savages rank lowest in intelligence in all of human beings. And they said, look, even though that was over 100 years ago, that was... Yeah, blatantly racist. And they said they feel bad about it. And they said that the best way that they can move forward is to acknowledge what they did. So I think it's a really interesting step. Yeah. When you look back at National Geographic, right? Sure. Yeah. But good for them for fessing up and and owning up and moving forward. Yeah. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say, folks? It is a Wednesday, March 14. We are still looking for an official winner in Pennsylvania 18. But the unofficial winner is Democrat Connor Lamb. And this is the Bill Press Show. Good morning after that special election in Pennsylvania. Great to see you today. Thank you for being part of the program. As we roll out to you from our studio in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., I had um, the chance to uh, interview the Democratic National Chair, uh, Tom Perez, last night, um, just before the polls closed in Pennsylvania, and uh, he left our program at the uh, Hill Center here in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., to run over uh, to CNN to talk about the special election. And as we speak right now, he's back on CNN talking about it uh, this morning. It was a big night for Democrats in Pennsylvania, and I think uh, bodes well for Democrats in 2018. Uh, And... a certain, certainly a warning signal for Republicans in 2018. Uh, that's leading our news today. Not all that we're talking about, but as we come to you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us. Great to see you on Free Speech TV, as always. And uh, what fun to be out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT. Great fun also to welcome 
to the program here as a friend of Bill for this hour, our good friend from the University of Virginia's Miller Center and former Deputy Secretary of Labor with Tom Perez, Chris Liu. Hi, Chris. Bill, it's great to be here. I, I heard it was a fantastic event last night. It was a good good time. Yeah, there you, a couple of your friends were there. And, I, I heard they, they got up and asked questions. And uh, and, and mentioned and your name. Absolutely. And gave you a plug. <laughs> you're going to be on the show this morning. It was all the, all the way around. And, and uh, Tom did a great job. He was really uh, in good form last night. And who's very excited. So what do you think about Pennsylvania? What's it say to you? Well, look, it, I think, vindicates the strategy that Tom has put in place as the chair of the DNC. I am also honored to serve as an at-large member of the DNC. And, you know, Tom's strategy from day one when he came in was that he wanted to compete not only in every race from the school board to the Senate to the Oval Office, but he also wanted to keep it, compete in every zip code. And so the fact that this is a R plus 20 district and we have the uh, kind of candidate that we had here, is remarkable given the fact that we didn't even compete this district in the past. And you also see this playing out. We saw The last this, two times it was not even a, dem- not not a, even Democrat, a Democrat running. Right. Yeah, which is incredible. Right. And so you see that ha- – you, you saw the impact of that last November in Virginia when we started competing in different races. You see that happening in North Carolina now where we have somebody running at every single district in North Carolina right now. You can't win unless you run somebody. Yeah. That, that that's sort of a pretty basic rule, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it, it is unless been, you have a player on the field, you're not going to win that game. Well, exactly. Right? Particularly when you are in a wave election, you need somebody on the surfboard, and if you're on the surfboard, you've got a chance of being carried across the finish line. Yeah. So Connor Lamb um, is. Uh, he, I mean, he really fit that district, didn't he? Yeah. Right? You I know, mean, look. I mean, it's it, interesting because he's a kind of Democrat that. You know, some people, a lot of friends of mine on the left would say, oh, no, no, he's not a good enough Democrat, right? But he's a Democrat, could win that district. And he did. You know, Looks like it. Uh, Bill, one of my bosses in the White House was Rahm Emanuel, and Rahm ran the DCCC in 2006 when we took back the not only House and the Senate. And Rahm ran it by, Rahm won the House back by running candidates who appealed to the districts. And he understood that, look, there are issues on which Democrats will disagree, things like abortion, things like, I think, increasingly less on gun control. Uh, But Mm -hmm. understanding that when you focus on the bread and butter economic issues, as Connor Lamb did, he focused on health care. He focused on the tax bill. And he was, you know, uh, he he came after uh, the Republicans hard on these issues. These are winning issues for Republicans. And if you run particularly, I'm sorry, for Democrats, these are particularly as... Democrats increasingly look look to veterans to run in some of these races. Uh, that could be the key in November. And if you look at what Republicans, uh, first of all, they drew this district as a R, R plus 20 district, as you call it, right? Donald Trump won it by 20 right. points. Uh, so they drew a Republican district. They spent $10 million in this district to trying to elect Rick Saccone. They sent Mike Pence up there. Donald Trump went up there himself, put, a, put his reputation on the line. Donald Trump sends Donnie Jr. <laughs> up there, right? I mean, they put everything on the line in a Republican district, beat red district. And if they can't win that district, what does that tell you for 2018? Well, it, it, it tells you that, uh, I mean, I think I saw last night on Twitter about 115 districts that Trump won by a smaller margin than what he won Pennsylvania 18 mm. by. So that it, that shows you why the playing field is as broad as it is for 2018. It's very clear uh, the RNC can't afford or outside groups can't put $10 million into every one of these races. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know, look, we're we're not always going to have the kind of candidate that that we have as Connor right. Lamb, uh, but it shows that if you have a good candidate, good candidates, and and let's be fair, Connor Lamb raised a lot of money on his own. Yes, and yes. and as you well know, uh, it is much cheaper to run as when you are the candidate than when you are the third party running. Uh, as on beh- mm-hmm. on someone's behalf, and so we're not going to win every one of these districts, but we have to compete in every one. And this is a interesting uh, game plan, uh, as was Doug Jones's victory last December as well. I think there are a lot of echoes of Alabama here in uh, in Pennsylvania eighteen. Yeah, uh, the no, same absolutely. thing. Donald Trump putting his putting his reputation on the line. And what does this say about the coattails of Donald Trump? Huh? Well, you know, they don't exist. It's interesting. The spin this morning coming out of the White House is that they were expecting a blowout loss and only the president's (laughs) 11th hour intervention kept it close. And to that, I say, bring it on. I would love to have Donald Trump uh, in each one of those 100 districts. I suspect I suspect Barbara Comstock will not want to see Donald Trump anywhere uh, in her district. I, I actually saw, I forgot who it was. That is but, funny. That's really funny spin. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I actually saw, I forgot who it was, but it was a, a member of Congress yesterday on, on one of the cable channels. It was They were asked, are, are you going to ask Donald Trump to come and campaign for you? And he just goes, uh, you know, I don't think we really have a need for that at this point. And I mean, look, as you guys have pointed out, well, he's kind of poison. Well, first of all, he might forget that he's there for you, not for himself. Right. He, That's exactly might, the problem. He might forget to mention your name. Right. <laughs> you know, and Bill, you pointed out the president made about as fast an in and out visit to California yesterday <sighs> as you could have possibly done. Bring it on. Let him come, come and campaign oh, yeah. with those endangered incumbents uh, in California. That is oh, yeah. not I going want, to help them. No, I want to see him out there. <laughs> Uh, by the way, just a little time out to let you know, uh, those of you just joining us, maybe exactly how tight it is at the last, very last official count uh, in uh, Pennsylvania uh, in the 18th Congressional District. Connor Lamb leading with 113,720 votes, or 49.8%, with Rick Saccone behind at 113,079 votes, a difference of 641 votes for 49.6%. It's up to the abs- – 100% of the precincts are in. It's up to the absentees, and it looks like most of the absentees outstanding are from Allegheny County, which of the four counties is the most Democratic of the counties. So if it holds, and it looks like it will hold, John King, whom I would trust um, politically you know, with my life savings, says it's just – Almost impossible for Rick Saccone to win at this point. Yeah, and point. you know what's interesting about this is, you know, I remember from my earlier days in campaigns, the traditional theory is Democrats don't return absentee ballots or mm-hmm. bad weather deters Democrats mm-hmm. from showing up. And I remember there was all this consternation last November in Virginia because it was raining in Virginia. What is this going to mean? Well, yeah, it, it shows that we will come out to vote when we are motivated to come out to vote, and we know how to get absentee ballots returned. Yeah. No, the the momentum and the energy is clearly on the Democratic side. Absolutely. Coming into 2018. Uh, And what I found most um, uh, encouraging about this is um, that the guts of the the Conor-Lamb campaign were the steel workers and the coal miners in this district. Uh, It is is the classic blue-collar working district. You know, there's still some active coal mines there. There's steel mills and closed steel mills. And the union leadership and the union workers, they, th- that was the Connor Lamb campaign. Uh, in the face of even Donald Trump 
throwing these tariffs on the steel industry, they still stuck with Connor Lamb because they know he's the real friend of working people. Yeah, you know, Monmouth poll. So the, Democrats, the workers, the unions came home. A- absolutely. Right? And, you know, Monmouth poll last week or a couple days ago showed that when they asked people whether the steel tariffs made any difference, I think 96 percent in that district said it didn't affect their vote one way or another. But what you saw is very strong support by the mine workers uh, mm-hmm. for Connor Lamb. Uh, and you and look, this is also an evolving district. I mean, this is a heavy. There's large suburban pockets of uh, well-educated, service-oriented workers um, who ha- are taking Pittsburgh really into the 21st century. I was with um, I was with Governor Wolf a couple of weeks ago at the Democratic Governors Association, and he is you know proudly uh, strutting around the fact that two of the final Amazon headquarter uh, possibilities are in Pennsylvania. One of them is in Pittsburgh. And they're choosing Pittsburgh not because of its history as a uh, as a steel or coal town, but because it is a high-tech uh, innovation center right now. Hmm. Well, there are three of them in the Washington, D.C. <laughs> area. Are so, three. No. So uh, let's, <laughs> let's remember that as well. Um, well, we'll see. I, I think uh, maybe hopefully even before this hour is out, we'll know the uh, we'll know the uh, the final the final word there. What was your take on um Rex Tillerson getting the boot yesterday. <laughs> By Twitter, of all things. Yeah. Uh, look, Peter made the point uh, earlier about, you know, a president who has made his reputation as the you're fired guy uh, is, is too uh, weak to actually fire somebody in person or even on the phone it is is actually stunning. I mean, I you know, I worked for Barack Obama for four years in the White House before I became the deputy secretary of labor. We did fire people. And the president would fire people. The chief of staff would fire people. You, you owe the whether you like the person or don't like the person. You owe that person the courtesy of having that conversation. And for John Kelly to uh, call uh, Tillerson in Africa with his, you know, vague uh, hint that there might be a tweet coming out about you. I mean, that's just you know, or John Kelly pick up the phone and fire Rex Tillerson. Look, I'm a nice guy, but I was head of a government office for Jerry Brown. Uh, 110 people. I fired people. I had to fire people. I hated it. But I called them into my office and said, hey, this just isn't working out. You know? th- there's a way to do it. Yeah. There's a you way know. to do it. Sorry about this. As much or, as you hate it, there's but, a way to do it. But this is it, right? And you just got you got to do it that way. I think you owe it to these people. I, I, think, I think it shows the, at but, some level a lack of decency okay, in this but president. Okay, there's a bigger picture here, which is, okay, we're heading into uh, this battle over maybe uh, a trade war over yeah. tariffs. And he fires his chief economic advisor. We're hiring. We're heading into maybe a summit with North Korea, and he fires his chief foreign policy advisor. I mean, this does reflect the disarray, right, in, in inside this White House. You know, look, there there is a pattern among presidents, and I saw this among pres- in President Obama that as the administration goes on. You do become more comfortable in your own abilities to lead the country, and so you're you're more willing to take on the burden of making these decisions. You might take a risk on people to be in your cabinet that you might not otherwise earlier in the administration. But we're only at the beginning of year two of this administration. This is a president who has shown no capacity for making very difficult decisions. You know, the fact that he can't even 
get his Republicans in Congress to agree on reasonable gun control legislation does not bode well for his ability to negotiate a nuclear deal with uh, with the North Koreans. And so you're right. We're about to engage in a trade war, which both has economic and diplomatic consequences. Uh, there is no secretary of state. There will be no chief economic advisor. Uh, you know, in some sense, I guess, on the North Korea front, you know, uh, if you're going to rip the bandit off, you do it now. Uh, and so you can start planning for that summit. But I'm still of the camp that I, I'm highly skeptical that summit will ever happen. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, you, you, you even saw last Friday. I mean, it's certainly not locked in. No, it is certainly not locked in. You saw last week Sarah Sanders really kind of backtracking and saying, you know, there need to be a certain set of preconditions. I think when you look at the reporting about how quickly this, I'll say rashly, this decision was made by the president after meeting with the South Koreans, they clearly had not thought this thing through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is. It is probably better to make to rip this bandit off now. But what's important to understand is that you don't really have the expertise within the White House or the State Department right now to help manage this. I mean, obviously, as we pointed out, there is no ambassador to South Korea. There's no assistant secretary for state for East Asian affairs. They just fired the undersecretary of state yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the State Department yeah. is a pretty empty uh, building right now. And putting together something of this magnitude requires a lot of people and a lot of smarts. Right. Uh, on his way to California, walking out to Marine One yesterday, uh, the president said something kind of strange, which might maybe would put the, 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 the fear of God into other members of the cabinet who um, are not sure of their positions, where he really indicated that, uh, okay, I've taken care of Tillerson, but I got a ways to go, right? Here he is. I'm really at a point where we're getting very close to having the cabinet and other things that I want. <laughs> like, wh- how he's do you getting even close, react to but that? he's not there yet, right? I-, I hope to God they did not spend government money <laughs> taking a cabinet photo because they're going to have to retake that photo in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, look, as your as your previous guest pointed out, I mean, obviously. I think Shulkin's days are probably numbered at this point right now, notwithstanding the fact that he I mean, look, leaving aside the boondoggle he took to Wimbledon, um, where he's pushing back on the administration is on essentially the privatization of health care for veterans. And he's probably not wrong on that. Um, Shulkin's days are probably numbered. The, the idea that you put Rick Perry in there is, is a little nutty as well. Uh, yeah, I can't figure that one out. I mean, it is. It, he uh, is a veteran, I guess. I guess right? he is a veteran. And when asked to recall the three agencies he would eliminate, he did not say. VA was not one of them. <laughs> no, he, VA was not one of them. So I give him credit for that. Uh, obviously, as you've we've talked about this morning already, there's Carson, there's DeVos, there's um, uh I doubt Zinke is on his way out, although, you know, it, it is sort of stunning that the, yesterday you've McMaster's. got McMaster, uh, you know, you, ha- you have you have um, uh, DeVos's uh, disastrous yeah. interview on Sunday night. You had Zinke yesterday on the Hill testifying about his uh, first uh, uh, about his his own travels. Uh, you have Shulkin under fire mm-hmm. and, and they weren't even the people that uh, were on the hot seat yesterday. Right. So you're former Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, what was your reaction to last Friday's job report, 331,000 new jobs created uh, in the month of uh, February? You know, they're good numbers, and, and I'm not going to say they're anything uh, but good. I mean, I remember during the Obama administration when we ran up numbers like that, uh, Republicans love saying, you know, up is down, down is up. And, uh, you know, a- a- any any jobs report that starts with a two or three or, frankly, a one at this point, given this where we are in this recovery, is good. That being said, the the area that we need to continue focusing on is wage growth. 
uh, you know, in January or the January numbers had showed a 2.9 percent increase. People were uh, were, were suggesting that this was going to create wage uh, inflation, which then uh, pushed the market down. Uh, the wage growth numbers for this month were 2.6%, which is fine, but it's not enough to make a meaningful difference in most people's lives. Inflation's running 2.1%. So effectively for most workers in this country, they're getting a 0.5% pay raise every year. And when you look at the long-term stagnation of wages, that's not enough to, uh, to make a difference in most people's lives. I think this is 89 straight months yeah. of um, positive job it, growth, it, right? it began back in 2000 and, uh, 2010, 2010, 2011. We've been creating jobs every month since right. then. So if it's 89, if it's, that, that's the right number, um, 14 of those, subtract 14. So 75 of those were under Barack Obama. Right. And I'm not sure that Barack Obama ever got the credit for that or the credit for averting the next Great Depression. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 the seeds of this recovery were planted in the $800 billion stimulus package that we passed in 2009 um, and, and the steps that we took to get the economy back up and running. You know, and, and, and while Trump loves to take credit for this economy, it's hard to see what he has actually done. I and mean, yes, he slowed down a couple of regulations <laughs> along the way. I think the jury is still out on whether the tax cuts will have any meaningful impact on job creation. Uh, Chris Lewis with us from the University of Virginia's Great Miller Center, a former Deputy Secretary of Labor here as a friend of Bill for this hour. I have to tell you, uh, the the most um, exciting thing that's happened, that I've seen happen in a long time uh, on the national front, was the success of the West Virginia teachers. <laughs> What a great campaign and what a great victory for them and for teachers across the country, huh? You know, it shows the power of collective action. And, you know, going back to the jobs numbers, we can talk about why wage growth has stagnated. But wage growth has stagnated at the time when unionization has gone down in this country. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the studies of unionized versus non-unionized jobs, uh, Tom Perez knows these numbers much better than I am, but it's a significant difference. And it shows that even in a state like West Virginia, uh, unions can make a difference and uh, make a meaningful difference in the lives of workers. Yeah, of all places, right? You know, West Virginia that you don't think of maybe as the strongest labor Absolutely. state. And yet they, they hung in there and uh, refused to take... The one percent or the two percent, you know, they were there for five percent, and even at five percent, they're basically still living in poverty. This should be an example for for uh, <clears throat> workers who want to unionize and organize around the country. Absolutely, because right? you're right. Even though I mean, even though they got what they wanted, it's still pathetic. Like it's yeah. still pathetic, and it all comes down to the fact that. Republican tax cuts, Republican tax breaks, and giving these incentives to big corporations like in West Virginia, they were giving it to the, you know, a lot of the coal companies and things like that. They don't have money to pay the people that they need to pay, right? They didn't have the money to pay the teachers. Well, I think it highlights two things. I mean, going back to where we started on Connor Lamb and Rick Saccone had pushed right-to-work laws in yes, the state of Pennsylvania, yes. which is one of the reasons why the unions, even those that supported steel tariffs, came out so strongly in favor of Connor Lamb. So that's one point. And then going to Peter's point, you see this ha playing out right now in Oklahoma, where because of the—in Kansas, because of the tax cuts, you are really raiding the money for schools, down to the point where many Oklahoma schools are down to four days a week now. So these are the stark differences that really— are facing most Americans and really what's going to be on the ballot this November.
Yeah, uh, I want to circle back to Pennsylvania, too, because there's one other f- factor there that I, I wanted to ask you about, um, which a couple of people pointed out yesterday. Um, and Tom Perez and I talked about this last night. Republicans going into 2018, well, coming out of 2017, their number one priority was to pass this tax cut bill because we need a victory. We need some, we need a, something we can showcase in 2018 and run on. And this is going to be our winning message in 2018 that we delivered these tax cuts. They tried that message in Pennsylvania 18, and they dropped it. They abandoned it. And and the closing argument went back to the same tired closing argument that they tried in uh, Virginia and in Alabama. Democrats are weak on veterans issues, gun issues, crime and border. You can look at Trump's tweet yesterday. It's virtually the exact same tweet he has been sending out for months. They're back to the yeah. same uh, fear mongering that they've used before. I think what it also. So should... what happened to the tax cut uh, message? Well, look, I, and I, there are surveys after surveys that, uh, that have been done on this. One of my favorite is uh, by a group called Just Capital, which uh, one of my very close friends works for. They basically looked at the announcements from 100 companies as to what they were doing with their tax windfall. 60% of the money, according to these job announcements, was going for stock buyback. About 20% was going for job creation. Only 6% was going to increase the wages or benefits of workers. And of that 6%, half of it was for these kind of throwaway $1,000 bonuses that were more of a PR gimmicky kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So average Americans, some of them have seen uh, tax cuts, but not a huge tax cut. And then they see this massive amount of money going uh, for for the super wealthy who owns stock or to corporations. Um and and they people right, rightly ask, was this the best way to spend a trillion and a half dollars? Right. And the answer is no. Well, however, it paid for my Costco membership. <laughs> it did pay for your Costco membership. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, but it, it's it, – yeah, no, that – I mean, and so the arguments, whether it is, you know, Paul Ryan and his, his tweet that he then deleted, you know, uh, yes, it, people will get some increase uh, in their take-home pay. But again, it's a short-lived increase, and when they see what the ramifications down the road potentially are on cutting Medicare, Social Security, uh, Medicaid, um, that's far more impactful. You know, looking back, that Costco tweet was an early sign of how ineffective and how weak the tax cut message was going to be for 2018, because they didn't have a lot to sell, right? Uh, not a lot of sizzle there with that stake. I mean, Bill, you understand. I mean, you, you, we've we've all lived through the days of trickle down economics. We saw how well this worked yeah, back I keep in the Reagan for era. The trickle. Yeah, it, and it just doesn't <laughs> happen. I mean, you 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 saw that 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 remember that that when they were trying to get the the tax bill passed, that dramatic moment where Gary Cohn is on stage and he asks, or with, oh. and they said to a group yeah. of CEOs, how many of you are going to like use your money to like create jobs? Like no one raises their hand. Very very awkward moment. That's the moment they should have realized. Hey, you know Uh-oh. what? This is not trickling down to anybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're going to take a quick break. Jen Bendry from HuffPost is going to join us uh, on the other side. Just a little uh, reminder. Uh, again, I'm uh, spending a lot of time these days signing books for all of you who have already ordered an advanced copy of my new book, From the Left, Life in the Crossfire. If you haven't already done so, get busy. Get with it. Go to uh, BillPressShow.com, uh, a special 40% discount for our listeners and our viewers. It's a fun romp, romp through a lot of the fun times and exciting times that I've had so far. I call it my memoir, Part One, because the part, part Two is yet to be written. 
Uh, but get your copy. It comes out next Tuesday. Uh, advanced copies available again on our website, BillPressShow.com. From the left, Life in the Crossfire. Um, Chris stays with us here. Chris Liu, for the entire hour, is a friend of Bill. We'll be joined by Jen Bendry from HuffPost, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. And here we are on a Wednesday, March 14. We're still waiting for the official results from Pennsylvania's 18th Congressional District. If we do not have them before the end of the show, we will make it official and officially <laughs> declare Connor Lamb the winner of uh, the uh, special election for Pennsylvania 18. Uh, he's doing it this morning, so we could join him. Here on the Bill Press Show, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, as always, Chris Liu with the University of Virginia's Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor uh, under President Obama, here in studio with us as a friend of Bill. Chris, glad to have you here, and great to welcome a regular, frequent, favorite guest, Jen Bendry from HuffPost, covers uh, the Congress for HuffPost and the White House, too, sometimes. Hi, Jen. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Are you good? <laughs> All right. So um, where do we start? You have been writing about one thing that Chris has been not getting a lot of attention. It did come up at this town hall I, I had last night with uh, Chairman Tom Perez. Are very quietly, the Trump administration has been pretty effective at getting a lot of judicial nominations confirmed and people placed on the federal bench, right? Oh, yes. He's he's confirmed 87 judges to date, which I don't normally know that number offhand, but I just wrote a story about it. So it is fresh in my mind. 87 lifetime federal judges, which is a lot more than either. I think Barack Obama or George <clears throat> I think Bush. It's more, is it more court of appeals at this point? So the, where the record numbers are, are on the court of appeals. Mm-hmm. He confirmed more lifetime circuit court judges in his first year as president than any president since the courts were created. So we're talking like a lot. And these are the circuit courts are one step above the district courts. And these are very, very powerful seats. These are these are the pool of people that a president will pick from to put someone on the Supreme Court. So Trump has now I think he put 11 Mm -hmm. circuit court judges on the bench um, just in his first year. But he's also just been flying through nominations faster than a lot of presidents. So he's got a whole bunch Why of people Why does he keep complaining about Democrats obstructing all of his judicial nominations? Because he just needs something to complain about. I mean, he's he's getting <laughs> he's he's getting a lot of judges through. A lot of this comes down to Mitch McConnell because he controls the Senate and he decides when a judge will get a vote. So sometimes Mitch McConnell may not want to spend the hours necessary to tee up a judicial nominee for a vote because there's all these procedural rules. You have to mm-hmm. let a nominee sit out for like 30 hours before you can vote on it. So it's not really Democrats doing this one. I mean, of course, Democrats are going to protest judges that they don't like. But I haven't seen waves of opposition or, or I guess I should say obstruction from Democrats on Trump's judicial nominees. But, Chris, these are significant, right, because these are lifetime appointees. And, you know, the kind of people that Trump is putting on the bench. I, I went to law school with Neil Gorsuch, so I can... Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I know yeah. Neil. I went to law school with both Neil Gorsuch and Barack Obama, so I can speak uh, about both of them. No, you're right. I mean, th- this was, you know, as we think now about the litigation that's happening, uh, whether it's on the, the travel ban, 
uh, whether it's on sanctuary cities, all the all the different social policies that are now being challenged in courts. Um, your legacy ultimately and, and your ability to move policy will be affected by these people that put it on the court. And as Jen said, these 11 people that are on the circuit courts right now are not only the feeder pool for the Supreme Court, but they ultimately will be deciding on some of the most controversial issues. So, for instance, in, in the Obama administration, uh, Republican AGs loved suing us in Texas because the Fifth Circuit was a very conservative place. Uh, and they were able to stop, for instance, the Department of Labor overtime rule there. They were able to uh, challenge DACA uh, uh, in the Fifth Circuit as well. So um, this is not just theoretical jurisprudence. This affects everyday policies that uh, will impact people. And one that uh, I just wrote a little bit about this myself, but I forget the exact numbers, but in terms of quantity of cases, the Supreme Court, for example, may take 100 cases a year or something like that, right? These Federal appeals courts take 100,000 cases a year. Thousands. Yeah. And they're yeah. often where a major case will end. Right. So yeah. that is like the final say, often in a very large case involving so the power labor or health care or education or these major issues. Well, the one thing, though, that we can, uh, we can appreciate is that uh, among these appointees, there's uh, a lot of diversity, right? <laughs> I was waiting for your lead in on this. Um, <laughs> so it is, again, it is worth looking at the quality of the nominees, not just the numbers. Um, the vast majority of Trump's judicial nominees are white men. I just crunched some numbers last week. It is something like 92 percent of his 87 judicial nominees are white. 77 percent are male. Um, zero are LGBTQ. There is one black judicial nominee out of 87. There's one Latino nominee out of 87. <laughs> and there are 20 women out of uh, 87. The rest are men. So there's not a whole lot of diversity uh, in terms of, you know, race or gender or um, sexuality. There's, it's just a, it's very much a straight white male crew. Um, very conservative for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're kind of fed from the Heritage Foundation uh, to the Trump White House. So and it's not just other, the numbers. Uh, what, what that, there's that other um, conservative. The Federalist Society. Federalist Society. Yep. Federalist Society. So yeah, there's a pretty, so. it's just a pipeline largely from these groups. And what that means is, you know, I, I wrote about this last week. And when I tweeted the story out, you know, some people responded, you know, well, it's about the quality of the, the nominee. It's not about race or gender. And, you know, that's that's racist for you to say that, you know, they should all, they should not be white or, you know, male. But what's important to remember is, guess the is what a judicial nominee brings. Pardon me? I'm sorry. It, it, what a judicial nominee bring or judge brings yeah. to the bench. Because sure. the experiences that a judge brings affect their take on cases and vice versa. If you are black or female or any of these, you know, non-white male groups of people, um, it, it gives the perception even that the court system, the justice system is fair and diverse and reflects people like you. So it's not just an older white guy every time when taking you walk up a case. into the courtroom. Yes. And so it's a kind of a two way street here. And yeah. that's why it's really important to for presidents to diversify the federal. It is bench. amazing, Chris, that you could just so basically blatantly just ignore diversity or any need to, to try to have some diversity among your appointees. So I will give that you a tangible example. This yeah. is something I worked on when I was at the White House um, mm-hmm. as an Asian American. Uh, one of the 
biggest criticisms of the, uh, the Asian American community is that we did not have representation on the federal bench. Uh, we were never going to get somebody on the U.S. Supreme Court if we had never we if we had hmm. no one on the circuit courts, which there were none when we came into office in 2009. Uh, hmm. President Obama more than tripled the number of Asian American federal judges. We went from about eight to 28, and I think we've got three or four now on the courts of appeals. That's not just bringing people into the court systems who have not been there before. But as Jen said, it's bringing a diversity of views uh, and really having um, a government that looks like the people that it's supposed to be representing. Which is important. Which is important. For all the reasons that you, that, that, that you mentioned. And also, by the way, I'm sure that that didn't just fall into place. I mean, you had to work. Right. At getting that diversity. Well, right. I mean, you know, but for, the candidates are out there, but you've got to find them. Well, that's right. I mean, and again, it's it, you. But you have to no. look in different places. If you're looking from the, you know, the Heritage Foundation or the Federal <laughs> Society, you're going to get a certain kind of people. <laughs> yeah, but right. there are people who have been prosecutors, who have been public defenders, who have been uh, who have worked at uh, state and local judges, law professors, law firm partners. If you look, you can find that diversity. I remember just my experience when I was working years ago for Governor Jerry Brown in his first turn as governor, uh, but for uh, got involved in some search for, I remember, trustees for the University of California. You know, you wanted people who reflect the population of California. And Jerry appointed the first LGBTQ member um, of the trustees, which made, made history. Also, the, I remember when Barack Obama appointed, uh, no, Bill Clinton the first LBGTQ openly gay ambassador, That's Jim Hormel from yeah. San Francisco, right? I was there when he was sworn in. The State Department made history. But, you know, he had to reach out and bring these people in. It just so, But the fact that Donald Trump could get away without even trying, I find stunning. Well, then you have to consider that he's probably not that directly involved himself anyway, even though in the end it's his legacy. Well, he gives a he direction, take, though. He yeah. does. He, has, he takes responsibility yeah. for this in the end. But you know that there's a couple of people sitting in a room and they're working directly with the Federalist Society, just yes. taking names. But and... you also know that Donald Trump is not saying, why do I have all these white guys? No, he's not. <laughs> right? No. no. Right. Uh, one other little history-making thing that you've been writing about is that we may have, I find this hard to believe, but the first Native American woman candidate for Congress? Yeah, ever, which is in our history, bananas. There's never been... Since like 1789, there's a woman now running in New Mexico for Congress who who has a real shot at winning and would be the first I, I crunched the numbers on this. It was something like there have been 11,000 people roughly who have served in the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate or in both chambers. And not a single one has been a Native American woman. So there's a woman, Deb, Deb Holland, running for Congress in New Mexico, who um, her primary is coming up and she, she could take it. It's a Democratic seat. So the primary is mm-hmm. where it's at. Um, so, yeah, I sat down with her for a bit and asked her about running and what she would bring to Congress. It is just sort of stunning when you think about um, the position of African, I mean, Native Americans in this country that there haven't been from particularly some of the Western states, right? But Well, there have been, so there have been a couple her. who ran. A couple of people have run before. They just uh-huh. didn't win. And there are a handful of Native American men, at least who are partially Native American, if not entirely, in, in Congress. But there's never been a Native American woman who's won. What is uh, Congress up to these days, anyhow? There's been so much happening. That uh, that, that gun legislation is just flying through Congress right now. Yeah, about that. (laughs) Uh, You know, they're not really going to do much on guns, (laughs) unfortunately. 
Um, as today is the national school walkout. Have you talked about that this morning? Uh, not yet. Uh, Peter has a teenager. He's waiting to hear uh, whether Gray is a. Uh, <clears throat> I texted him this morning to ask yeah. him what's the what's the plan. I uh, think he's walking out. He is. Is yeah, his whole school, or is he rebelling by doing it? I think he's got some friends that are going to do it with him. I'm not sure if the whole school is going to do it, but I know he he was talking about he had a plan. And so. what's the plan? Oh, he's going to walk out. He's going to walk out. Walk home. <laughs> He's not going to go home, is he? Yeah, why not? Okay, the point I mean, is that you're supposed to walk out <laughs> for 17 minutes. Yeah. Oh. And then I go see. back in. Oh. Not go home. Well, I will, I will say this. There's a whole... No, I was kidding about him going home. But there's... <laughs> no, you there, weren't. There's a... Well, I don't know what the plan is, to be perfectly honest. But I know that, that I got a, an email from the superintendent of schools who was saying, like, they've, they've put together... They realize the kids are going to do this. And if you walk out of school, it's going to be an unexcused absence. But they, at the same time, they have all kinds of different activities planned at the school. Like there's going to be a letter writing campaign to your uh, local officials are doing the cafeteria. They're doing like a moment of silence outside at the basketball court. And so they, they've got a bunch of stuff at school to try and keep kids there, but also to still participate. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure which route he's going to go. So yesterday, um, Peter, you reported earlier, uh, to, to your point, Jen, uh, in front of the Capitol, on the south lawn of the Capitol, 7,000 pairs of shoes, uh, a pair of shoes for each child that has been killed by gunfire since Sandy Hook six years ago, Uh, not even. Uh, You would think that maybe some members of Congress might look out the windows of the Capitol and see those shoes and think maybe we should do something about gun safety. It was a very dramatic scene. It's if you haven't looked at the photos, it's just a, a field of shoes down there that goes on nuts. forever. Um, it was nuts. I mean, look, we talk about this all the time, right? We talk about the gun stuff, but to see it put into those terms was sobering. Yeah, but it's it, it's still I don't. <laughs> what impact? I don't see Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell doing much of anything on this, if literally anything at all. Which again, you have to ask, what is it going to take? You know, we had Sandy Hook, which arguably was the low. Of this entire debate, you know, elementary school children being gunned down and nothing happened. So here we are years later. We had another, you know, the Parkland shooting. It's getting some attention. There's going to be a march, a major, huge march in D.C. in a couple weeks led by teenagers. I don't know. As someone who's covered gun control and gun violence in Congress for years, I, I after Sandy Hook, it just felt like if they're not going to do, if they don't have the will to pass anything after this, and I don't know what it will take. What it will take? Yeah, I, Jen, I, I, I was, uh, I was in the White House when Sandy Hook happened, <laughs> and I, you know, I've been with Barack Obama a long time. That is the most emotional I have ever seen him, and in subsequent times when he talked about that, he teared up. And that look, I've, I've spent my career in D.C. I still believe in the power of government, but if after Sandy Hook we couldn't get sensible background checks passed where there was bipartisan support on it. I, I, I am very, very pessimistic that anything's going to happen. But, you know, fortunately, Betsy DeVos is actually running a commission that's going to look at this issue oh, of school yeah, violence. Right. I'm sure oh, that's yeah. really going to get to the heart of this problem. That's what we need. <laughs> that's what we need is another Blue Ribbon Committee. Exactly. Right. Particularly headed by Betsy DeVos, right, <laughs> uh, right. To, get it, to, to get anything done. But it's just stunning. And the power, uh, we know it is possible because we know people who've done it who have Barack Obama's a great example, John Yarmouth from Kentucky, you can you can get a lousy rating from the NRA and still get elected and reelected. But too many people believe you can't. 
But that was the that was the hypocrisy in that that cabinet room meeting that Trump did a couple weeks ago, where he sat there and he mocked right. Pat Toomey right. on his fear of the NRA, yeah. and then he comes and does a one eighty a couple weeks later and pulls back on raising the age uh, uh, for for buying assault weapons, which is not even that dramatic. I mean that that no, certainly no. would have affected. Uh, the situation here, but it, it would not have prevented Las Vegas, Fort Hood, uh, San Bernardino. All of those tragedies still would have happened, even if the, the, their age were 21. Yeah. And that's the least you could do, and we can't even get that done. Right. And it, it wouldn't be, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so ridiculous the way that these flip flops are happening. I mean, Marco Rubio is also a classic example because there was a town hall after the Parkland shooting. Marco Rubio goes on there, says all this stuff about, like, you're right, we should. We should not be selling military-style rifles to people who are 18 years old, which is currently happening all over the country. And so he was. He said on TV in front of families touched by the Parkland shooting that we need to raise the age to 21 for buying these assault-style rifles. Fast forward, you know, a week or two, he's, he's on TV. He's putting out statements saying that, you know, this whole issue is not about gun control. It's about killer control. And we need to focus on other things and not gun control. And he still is the sponsor of a bill that would allow that allows 18 year olds in D.C. to go buy an assault rifle. And he won't take his name off of it. And there's just so much. I mean, there's hypocrisy all the time in this town in Congress. But the gun debate is arguably the most galling extreme versions of, of hypocrisy you'll find because they pander to the cameras right after oh, yeah. shooting and then and then they fall right back into it. I don't think anybody looks worse on it than Marco Rubio does. A little bit of breaking news. This seems to be the time when news breaks every, yesterday at this time yeah, right. is when we heard about Rex Tillerson getting fired uh, right here on the air. Uh, I just noticed that um, uh, Theresa May, the prime minister of uh, the UK, has just announced they're expelling 23 Russian diplomats from England in retaliation uh, for the poisoning of this uh, Russian uh, oligarch, I guess, and his adult daughter. Uh, But this is not the first time we've seen Russia sending spies into the U.K. um, to poison Putin's enemies. And yet we have the president yesterday when he was asked about this says, well, we should punish the Russians or whoever did this. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, my favorite yeah, clip here, of the day yesterday, which got buried in all the Rex right. and stuff, is when he talked about waiting to get all of the facts yes, on this. Right. As soon as we get the facts straight, if we agree with them, we will condemn Russia or whoever it may be. Does yeah, anything? Let's, no, let's play that again. Yeah, There's a key again. phrase there that you got to hear. <laughs> yeah, right. As soon as we get the facts straight, if we agree with them, <laughs> we will condemn Russia or whoever it may be. <laughs> yeah. Does anything sum up the Trump administration better than if we agree with the facts, Mm -hmm. then we'll say something about it? Well, we have to decide whether we agree with the facts or the alternative facts. Right. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. But um, but you're right. I mean, she said right away the Russians were responsible. Rex Tillerson said right away the Russians are responsible. Donald Trump. Bill, people forget, you know, we have, I mean, leaving aside the tensions between the U.S. and U.K. right now, the U.K. is one of, I think, the three or four countries that the U.S. intelligence community has like an intelligence sharing arrangement with. I think it's Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand. Um, And so the information that the intelligence community in in the U.K. is collecting is going straight to our people. So the the facts should be have been transmitted and they should be very clear and there should be no 
daylight between the prime minister and the U.S. president on this issue. And the fact that we are still arguing about it or we have a president who won't acknowledge it is stunning. Yeah. And the reach of um, and the gall, I guess, of the Russians to front page New York Times this morning as Putin's foes fled to London, spies followed. So these people that Putin's been, you know, sort of chased out of Russia, they go to London to get sanctuary. He sends the spies after them. And we see, you know, that they're that they're um, I mean, it's not just spying on them, but looking for an attempt to to knock them out. Um, What are you hearing? Did you have a chance yesterday, uh, Jen, on Congress to reaction to um, Mike Pompeo, new CIA, who will need a new state secretary of state who will need confirmation and then Gina Haspel, who may be the bigger question, who will need confirmation for CIA director. The lines are usually pretty clear on when there's, uh, you know, people nominated to cabinet posts. Democrats are like, well, we're skeptical, but we'll, we're going to ask the hard questions in the confirmation hearing. Republicans will say, oh, this is a great nominee. And, you know, mm-hmm. we stand by Mike Pompeo. Um, and it's pretty much the same with Pompeo. This time, there's some Democrats who have said, hey, we thought Rex Tillerson was bad. This guy's worse. But, you know, we'll be fair and we'll ask our questions in the confirmation hearing. So there is some skepticism of Pompeo. I haven't seen any Democrats put out statements that are particularly supportive. um, But they have to wait for their hearing. With Gina Haspel, it gets a little more dicey because her record, you know, words that are often associated with Gina Haspel are torture and mm-hmm. waterboarding and destroying black videotapes sites. and black right. sites. And, and because she led uh, a black site, I think, in Thailand, where they routinely they carried out waterboarding. They carried out torture. Somebody almost died at one point during some intense questioning. And not only that, but after that site had been in operation for a while, she directed someone to find all the videotapes from their interrogations and destroy them. So that's sort of like two issues here, you know, torturing and then destroying evidence. So that has raised some red flags with people. But she, this Gina Haspel has been with the CIA for like since like 1985. Mm-hmm. So she is a very long time uh, CIA official. There's a lot of people who know her and respect her work. She's won a number of awards as a, you know, a top ranking CIA official. So. It's kind of a mixed bag. You know, even Dianne Feinstein, who previously, when Gina Haspel came up for a, basically a promotion that sent the Senate had to approve, Dianne Feinstein said no years ago. Now she's up for CIA director. Dianne Feinstein put out a statement that was not particularly harsh, which and, and I think she'll come before her committee, I guess, mm-hmm. the Judiciary Committee. So... Um, I don't know. It could get a little weird with Gina Haspel. She's going to have some very awkward questions to answer about torture. But she has been in the CIA for so long. And, you know, her former boss, John Brennan, was raving about her on TV yesterday. So there's that push-pull between longtime CIA officials who were part of the Bush administration's torture program. And then people today who say, hey, that was not great at all that you did that. And you should never, anyone who did that should never have a job in government, especially but, as the head of the CIA. But Chris, none of those people were ever held accountable or fi- charges were never filed against. It was talk about it at the time the, 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 for her and others. 
even war crimes. Yeah. No, I, look, Jen, the, it'll be interesting with House Bill because as the deputy director, she did not require Senate confirmation. Mm-hmm. She can legitimately go back and say, look, the policy we implemented in 2005 was the administration and the agency policy at that time. Um, I Again, it, I was simply following the instructions, the orders right. of the agency. You know, I think the upside for her is that she does have people like John Brennan uh, on her side as well as uh, Diane Feinstein. But I think there is going to be at least an examination about the practices, whether that's enough to derail her, probably not. The Pompeo one is an interesting one because, you know, Pompeo and his testimonies uh, and, and his public statements on Russia has been far more forceful than uh, th- than Trump has ever been. Now, whether he was simply... Um, parroting what his uh, analysts have said or whether he actually believes that I think is an issue that the Foreign Relations Committee is going to look at. The truth is, from what I hear, is Pompeo is actually fairly popular within the CIA. I think people Mm -hmm. were concerned that he probably has politicized that job. That being said, he has stood up for his employees in a way that Tillerson hasn't done. And I think the fact of if Pompeo can come in and say, hey, I'm going to reinvigorate the State Department that Rex Tillerson has gutted, um, he might get some Democrats on it. Look, I still think it's going to be a partisan vote. Okay. Um, but um, Well, we have uh, just 30 seconds left, and so we are now officially declaring Connor Lamb uh, the new uh, we are here. Yeah. <laughs> we are. You heard it here first. I heard it here first. Decided yeah. on the Bill Press show. Uh, he, he has won the uh, Democrat. He has won the uh, special election in Pennsylvania's 18th and will be the next uh, congressman from, uh, from uh, Pennsylvania. Which um, some Republicans in Congress are going to be looking at today, wondering if they're going to invite Donald Trump to campaign for them, right? 